This is Series 4 of Brave New Girl Podcast. I'm Lou Hamilton, artist and author of Brave New Girl, How to Be Fearless, Fearless, and my latest book, Dare to Share, helping you become an awesome guest on podcasts, raise your visibility, and attract new audiences into your world. I welcome you here to stories of real-life Brave New Girls who share with you how they found purpose and courage on the roller coaster journey of entrepreneurship and creative enterprise. This week's guest is Naomi Fryers, author of A Very Long Way, a non-fiction narrative about her mental health journey in which she learns about overcoming as a basis of proof that surviving can translate into future thriving for those committed to healing. Welcome, Naomi, to Brave New Girl Podcast. Hi, Naomi. How are you? Good, thanks. Lou, yourself? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. I'm looking forward to talking to you on this subject because I think it's very important. And I think in the last couple of years, we've some real challenges globally, and there have been some real drivers of mental health mental ill health which have included social isolation job and financial worries housing insecurities working on in frontline services as well as those people who already had mental health issues you've written about your own journey I wonder how the last couple of years have affected you yeah well thank you so much for having me and um yeah I'm very open to this conversation I think in some ways um in some ways, the psychological barriers around lockdown, like I'm from Melbourne um, in Australia, so we've done, I guess, you know, the, the world record-breaking lockdown here and we've had curfews and um, five-kilometre radius zones and all that kind of thing. So um, I think we've surpassed 250 days in full lockdown. So it has come with some challenges, but it's also been an opportunity in some respects um I know I've gotten to know my neighbors a lot more than I ever had (laughs) um not only that uh, you know we've we've learned to entertain ourselves and not be reliant on a lot of external entertainment which has been nice for my family I think like coming through things with like quite a you know passion for uh, board games <laughs> and other like going back to basics has been quite nice in some ways um I think this yeah as I said the psychological barriers were probably the hardest for me just in terms of I think maybe trauma informed care like a lot of people who have you know reactions to trauma and stress kind of tend to feel entrapped by new like restrictive measures so I think that's something that's particularly been hard for a lot of people So before we get into your own mental health journey, I'd like to go back to to you as a child. So you've written this book, but you were always writing, weren't you, ever since you were very little. So can you paint a picture of what what life was like for you growing up? Yeah, I was a a wild, free little spirit (laughs) in my younger years, but... um, probably had a bit of a penchant for finding stress and worry and a touch of trouble and drama as well, to be honest. Um, I, I've always loved writing and storytelling and I could get absolutely lost in, I don't even know if this is just an Australian fad actually, but we had these things called dinky diaries. And now that I think about it, they had kangaroos and stuff on the cover. So maybe they were, (laughs) but I could, I could get lost in one of those for hours, just like um, encoding them, you know, with, 
my crushes and all kinds of other things and a flavored colored 10 pen was just my go-to <laughs> for self-expression but I also really enjoyed just um telling stories and and providing a bit of um comedic value when I could as well <laughs> so uh, I did a lot of process writing and stuff at school which was very cool um, we got to watch behind the news and stuff like that and so I was had a pretty keen interest in social justice matters as well so I think that's yeah I just I, I've always loved it it's just come very naturally to me I mean when I actually when I was growing up I didn't really know there weren't a lot of write, women writers that were very like well known in terms of like pop culture life and all that kind of thing so like back in my zone in the 1980s in the outer outskirts of Melbourne. Um, I mean, like I could think of a handful of people that I was aware of, maybe like April from the Ninja Turtles and a couple of others. Um, but yeah, it wasn't like, it wasn't a thing in my head that I would become a writer, just kind of evolved, I guess. So when you left school, what did you set out to do then? I actually had no no idea what I wanted to do and it was only my love of really probably humanities that saw me end up taking a Bachelor of Arts um, at Melbourne, at, in Melbourne um, at Monash Uni and, and I kind of just stumbled into falling in love with the student um, newspaper while I was there and did like a quasi apprenticeship in print publishing but I mean, I got sidetracked along the way as well. I poured a lot of beers at the local pub. <laughs> I did a lot of waitressing. <laughs> I've done plenty of admin and I've also done quite a bit of mental health. So <laughs> I've always had like a day job if, you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> so what happened when you sort of hit a point where, was it one point where you, where everything started to fall apart or was it a slow, gradual thing that you started to realise that, you were sort of losing the ability to hold on tight? Oh, no, it was pretty swift. Um, but, I mean, there were, I think I hit rock bottom swiftly as in in terms of like losing grips on reality and then being institutionalised and confined into a ward. That happened quite quickly. So I'd say within a matter of weeks. Can you outline what the build-up to that was and then what actually happened? Yeah, so... Um, I'd had I'd had some health issues and my I never really had realized how intrinsically linked my physical and mental health was um, and I'd had quite a few significant health issues some autoimmune complications my body was shutting down we didn't really couldn't get a handle on what was going on neurologically with me and then um, that the how I felt quite trapped and I think my current doctor said that what she thinks has happened is like psychologically that's brought up a trauma response, um, which has in turn given me psychosis. And then how that sort of culminated was that I lost touch with reality over a period of weeks, um, stopped looking after myself completely. And then, um, yeah, I, I was forcibly removed from my rental property in front of my um yeah, my now husband, my boyfriend, um, and yeah, and taken to a ward, um, which was a public ward, and it was it was a really volatile place, and it was quite scary. Yeah, I got taken by police, so that was pretty full on. 
Um, and it was, yeah, it was a pretty dramatic fall from grace because I was just supposed to be starting my postgraduate journalism studies. So it's not really what you expect, to be honest. So were you hallucinating, having delusions? What was actually going on in your mind? Can you remember? I can. I can remember bits and pieces. It is a little bit sketchy, but um, yeah, I, I certainly had um, like, uh, I'd say like de- it was, I was delusional, but also like a um, quite um, heightened, like had a heightened sensitivity to danger. So like almost to the point of like feeling persecuted kind of thing. Um, yeah. And, and also, yeah, I, I just, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure on how, like what happened, but I do know I was very fearful and yeah, it wasn't ideal. And when you go into institution, mental health in- institutions, as you say, they're very volatile places, very scary, and you're expected to kind of get better in in that environment. So what was it that helped you to get through that and then to be able to start your healing journey? I I don't think that when I went into that ward, I came out better. (laughs) Um, I don't think I was ready to heal for a very long time. And I actually feel like in retrospect, that those some of the things that happened they may have saved my life um but they also did compound my trauma i think it's it's not it's not something that you know you would want to happen lightly like um obviously and i mean it's legislated by law so there's a section of our mental health act that you can't be taken away unless you're a danger like to yourself or someone else um, which I was perceived to be a danger to myself. Um, so I think I wasn't ready to heal for a very long time after that. But and and I even I suppose rock bottom is like a that felt like rock bottom at the time. But I didn't know, and and I I didn't know that there was like harsher times to come as well. And like and there was sort of like that's the thing with a recovery journey. It's an ebb and flow situation. So you know it's a bit of a cha cha. You can go forward and then back and sideways and then forward and back again so that was you know that I didn't I think probably rock bottom came not long after when I just got hit with the full uh overwhelm of the recovery journey itself and also coming to terms with things that had happened in the period that I was you know active but not active (laughs) um so just like even even things very I have found very traumatizing um, about finding like bits and pieces of letters and things that I've sent. <laughs> it's really, you know, it's, and it's like an out-of-body experience in a way because you're like, that's my handwriting. Like what what happened there? <laughs> so stuff like that, um, just very overwhelming. And then I think that the make, the make or break point was probably, you know, a, a not far after that when I had considered ending my life and and then I just sort of realised something had to change. Were you put on medication and given counselling? You know, what was the 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 menu of of care that you were you were given? And bearing in mind that you also had those physical conditions that that you believe had actually triggered the the mental health issues. So, were they being looked after too? Yeah, um, not at the time. So it wasn't until a lot long like a long time afterwards that we actually realised the interconnectivity of the conditions. 
but oh, that, this is the, the frustrating thing, I guess, about medicine is when you have different specialists in different areas and, and not enough people on the same page. So I was actually, you know, on the one hand taking steroids um, to suppress my immune system and on the other hand being pumped full of antipsychotic medication. So, like, who knows? I don't know. I just feel like that mixture can't be good for anyone ever. Um, but I might be wrong. Um, it, it certainly didn't work for me. And also, I just the side effects of some of the medication I took, you know, like the mood stabilizers and stuff, um, they made me quite ill, um, like nauseous. And uh, I also just I felt very stunted in terms of my emotions. Um, sometimes just very, very empty and alone. Um, and that can cause you to retreat in itself because you sort of like, you know, you're there, but not there. And that's a really awkward position to be in. So I found those pretty hard. So you'd sort of handed your care over to to people that you trust to, to know how to sort you out. Um, at what point did you start to think, maybe you could play a part in in your own healing then yeah that's an that's a great question actually this is my 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 doctor I started working with her probably three to four years ago and um one of the she she told me two things in our first I think it was 20 minutes together she told me that I'd get better which was something I'd never heard any other um treat treating team make that prognosis about my um, psychiatric health and she told me that what I put in um to my own recovery I would get out and the other thing she said is um I'm a psychiatrist I'm not here to treat you a good psychiatrist doesn't treat you they empower you to treat and help yourself on your recovery journey we're in it together like you need to take charge and that that changed my life actually it changed my outlook but it also gave me hope and that was so important. It was so important. And I'll, I'll be forever grateful for her wisdom. And it was, it was she's like, a, she's so amazing. She's like a breath of fresh air. Um, she's, I, I know a lot of people who see her actually. And um, she's very well respected in Melbourne, especially um, oh, by everyone. But it's very rare to have a psychiatrist who you've never heard anyone say a bad word about and that she's her that's her she's amazing so not everybody goes to the darkest place that that you went but you know many many of us go through sort of ups and downs and and you know struggle with anxiety or depression at some some level or overwhelm or stress you know and and in particular the sort of last couple of years which have been so challenging and so what were those first few steps that you took when you thought, okay, well, I can have a hand in this myself? Yeah, I started experimenting with things that made me feel good. And a lot of the things that I didn't, I'd taken up doing, I didn't know had therapeutic merit. So it's interesting how you naturally gravitate towards things that help. So, for example, I was doing a lot of sensory modulation, but I just thought I'm just burning oils. Like, I just like it. I didn't know that's what I was doing. I'd started trying to write again, but that I didn't realize I was trying to express myself and purge some of this stuff. So I just started working on that. I also did a few bum steers, you know, like I thought, oh, well, if I run a half marathon, that means I'm better. So I'll do that too, which, you know, isn't really ideal if you haven't trained, <laughs> but I still did it. <laughs> 
<laughs> so like and then I, and I also thought if I lose 30 kilos I'll be really super happy and that didn't work out either so <laughs> um yeah <laughs> I mean I had to it was a trial and error <laughs> and working with your psychiatrist were, was she making suggestions or were there were you reading were you googling how do you find the kind of information to help yourself then no so she, she was definitely there um to help me but I think of some of the things I just so she did offer guidance and she did offer support but she also knew I had to learn for myself and she and I think you know it's the same as like as a parent and a coach that you have to let people learn from their own mistakes and make those mistakes because that's how people grow like she wasn't there to like she did brace me from the lows but she also didn't just give me all the answers and solutions because obviously what works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for someone else. So she wanted me to find what worked for me. And that was the most empowering thing she could do. What were you starting to find worked and, and did you, could you see, was it a gradual kind of lifting of the heaviness or was it that you could see a light at the end of the tunnel and you were going towards that How, what was the kind of process that you were going through sometimes it was just sheer grit and determination um I maintained a level of hope um that's just so important I never actually I, ha- I always kind of had this like little nagging belief like or gut instinct or something that I was going to get better even though I'd been told I wasn't so I think I just like held on to that for dear life at some points And then like when I started writing and expressing myself, it started to sort of make things better. And then eventually like with coming off a lot of the medication, I just started to clear up like my mind as well. I could think straight, which I hadn't done. I actually didn't realise. So um, when I first came off the medication, I couldn't, I thought I'd broken my phone screen. I had a crack in my screen. It was really bothering me. And um, my husband said, oh, that's been there for 18 months, but I just never noticed it. So I actually, I don't think I could see clearly either. So that's interesting too. In any condition and even in kind of good health, we're, we're sort of all encouraged to, you know, eat nutritionally well, to be hydrated, to get sleep, to get exercise. Did you start to implement those things and could you feel the difference of doing that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, you know what? One of the smartest things anyone's ever said to me is no one ever regretted a hot shower. And it's so true. Like, there's just so much to be said for that. I also take a lot of long hot baths. <laughs> I just think there's so much, there's something in that too. Um, but I, I know there's a huge correlation between mood and food, and also just for my physical health as well. Moving my body helps, music helps. So, all those things just so important I don't cope well um on limited straight um sleep so when I've had a few consecutive nights of bad sleep like I actually start to feel the fog coming on so I just yeah and also a change of scenery and I probably struggled with that in lockdown too to be honest because there's a lot to be said for just you know either I don't know sitting on the shore or going for a walk in nature like all that stuff's very calming and just helps you reset doesn't it at what point did you start to did you decide that you were going to start writing out your your journey and did was that the point where you felt right I I feel better now so I want to catalog that journey or 
were you writing as part of the healing process? I actually had no idea that writing my story was going to be so cathartic. Um, I, I, I started writing and in the first few chapters were quite emotional and it was quite grueling, but like I'd already started. So I kind of just had to finish. That's how I felt. And I didn't realize that by the end, I'd be like a completely different person. Um, so that was really interesting as well. And then reflecting on being able to reframe a narrative and then tell it in your own words from your perspective, but obviously like thinking about it from how others might perceive it and all that stuff. It's, it's actually really life-changing because for the, not only like for the first time in a long time, I was in control of the story, but also like I realized I could dictate the ending, which like, how cool is that? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a great believer in, in being able to reframe your story so that, you know, we can interpret what happens in so many different ways, can't we? And, and some interpretations make us feel worse and some make us feel better. So how would you say that you started to reframe your story? Yeah, so I think gleaning um, the hardest lessons as learnings really helped me. And, and actually, like, when I look back, um, and this might have, you know, been a shift and a transformative thing that happened during the process of writing, I guess. But, you know, looking back, I guess I'm a much more well-rounded human than I was before I had a nervous breakdown. I'm more compassionate, like a lot more compassionate. I'm also just like more socially aware. Um, I've got a stronger sense of social justice. Like I'm, I'm quite passionate and driven about suicide prevention. And in some ways I feel like... Um, I've turned it into a superpower of being able to tell my story. And then like, I know other people will gravitate to me, you know, when they feel like they need to share something and it's nice to be able to, you know, give back to friends that have been there for you. So I, I just hope that my story can go on to help people. Yeah. So you did start to kind of turn it from being about you getting better to looking at how you can help others sort of either prevent them getting into that situation in the first place or once they are in it finding a way out and you've talked about sort of legislation as well so can you talk about what you mean by that yeah so there, there's so many things that you know I think I, I would really like to see happen so in Victoria my home state we're actually in we're actually just about to embark on a massive um mental health system overhaul and I think that's great and it's amazing and it's very welcomed it needs to happen it's come off the back of a huge royal commission into you know all the issues and and there there are so many like um so gendered violence is still massive and a huge issue in mental health service facilities I know I was terrified the whole time I was on the ward but not only that, like there's, we've got massive cultural issues in Australia as well around domestic violence and um, yeah, gendered violence more, more like I just, I think there's still a lot of taboo and stigma in our society about all kinds of things. People aren't always free to express their emotions as they, you know, they might be in other places. I'm not sure like how yeah, how, how it pans out elsewhere, but I just feel like there's still a very like um, rigid idea of what's on the table for discussion. Um, I think some of the things are education programs around 
people managing like complex emotions and conversations and not only that like around managing um, just coping strategies and even like when I was in school we we didn't talk about emotions like I know my son it's a lot more progressive now so um, my son's at school and they have worry jars and they talk about their emotions and they label them and they do meditation and mindfulness. And I'm like, crikey, I could have done with a bit of that. <laughs> um, so we are moving in the right direction, but it's just a matter of also like bringing back my generation who was still doing all the old stuff and retraining them too. <laughs> and where do you feel is the biggest gap that need where m- more, most help needs to be implemented? I think trauma-informed care is still a massive one. Um, So at the moment, we're actually um, implementing quite a lot of lived experience workers into the mental health system Um, because not only are they old hands at navigating the system and they understand the complexities and the ironies of the system, they know what helps in the recovery journey. And they're sort of, in some ways, they have a level of compassion and understanding and insight that clinicians who haven't been through it just can't express or don't understand. And sometimes I think, you know, it's easy and quick to judge someone's behaviour or the way they're acting or the way they're feeling as like, um, yeah, behavioural based, you know, like um, as opposed to analysing where that's coming from and what's caused it to begin with. So I think lived experience workers have a lot of great things to share in that regard. And I really welcome that change too. And are you doing some of that work yourself? I have. I have in the past. Um, I'm not at the moment. Um, I'm focusing a bit more on art. It just seems to light me up a little bit more. But I do. I would love to see some more systemic change and I would love to do advocacy in the future. But I do find the wards particular like they make me quite fragile I just I don't I feel like uh, a bit sensitive in terms of the level of exposure to the trauma so I yeah I haven't done that for quite some time and I'm not quite ready I don't know if I will go back to that but I'd like to probably do more uh, systemic level stuff and what do you mean by that Um, So more like um, policy and decision-making probably, Um, but also like even I don't know how it's going to happen. So I think like whether or not it happens like through art and through championing diverse voices or whether it happens through like I've even thought about comedy sketches of like pointing out the ironies of the mental health system itself and how like inaccessible it is or even if it's like driving policy change. I I don't know how it's going to work, but I'm sure it will. Everything pans out in the end, doesn't it? (laughs) And so for people who feel that they're in the middle of overwhelm, that they're really stressed, they are kind of worrying about their own worries and feeling anxious, what are the things that you would say that they can tap into immediately, but also what things can they build into a daily practice that help them on the long term? So some kind of emergency care and long-term practices yeah so I think if anyone's struggling one of the most important things to do is to to reach out to a GP as a first point of call if they're not already plugged into a service just because I'm conscious that once it goes to a certain stage you can actually lose touch of how quickly things can drop 
Um, so I always say that that's one of the first things because obviously like people who are experienced in the mental health services can monitor those things. Um, but in terms of like day to day, um, I really feel like it's very individualized practice recovery, but I think that stopping and taking a breath, um, is really, I can't hurt anyone. A long hot shower can't hurt anyone. A walk in the garden and a pat of the dog will never hurt anyone. And a chat to your neighbor. They really help. They're just, it's a reset. It's like a reset button. <laughs> and what are your hopes for the future? Oh, goodness. Um, I really hope that, you know, by the time maybe, because so my son's eight and I, I really hope that by the time he's an adult, we've really made a massive, massive progress into driving down the suicide rate in Australia um, because it is frightening. It is terrifying. It's actually twice as high as the national road toll. I think that's a really scary place to grow up. And what do you see as being the things that can help reverse that? I think we're in a good place to start. So looking at things like self-actualization, um, the things like if, you know, um, storytelling can even play a role in suicide prevention um, if and open communication and dialogue, bringing lived experience workers back into the workforce and helping to, um, you know, guide consumers through their journey. Um, also just like imagine if all clinicians were like my doctor. <laughs> I really feel I really feel like that would be very special. <laughs> and so that trauma informed care's just never been so, you know, obvious to me because she just she's very she knows, she understands. And not only does she understand, she can educate me about why my default settings are the way they are. And when you can identify that before you you react to them, that's quite helpful in turning them around. So in everything that you've experienced and all the challenges that you've been through, how would you define courage? Oh, I think courage is an interesting one because it can look like so many different things. Um, you know, like obviously you think of heroicism, like, you know, the, the guy, the big burly firefighter running into the building or whatever. But some of my most courageous moments were like, well, I don't know what to do here. I'm just going to have to take a Valium and go to bed. And sometimes that's literally the most courageous thing you can do is go, you know, like everything's gone to hell, but I'll just follow my survival instincts here because tomorrow's got to be better. And that's courageous too. And sometimes that's, that's just where people are at and that's okay. Thank you so much, Naomi, for sharing your own journey so that others may see their own stories reflected that they may be given a way to create resilience in their own ability to survive and thrive. Thank you so much, Naomi. Take care. Keep being courageous. Keep going. Keep doing all the great work that you're doing. Thanks so much. Thanks, Naomi, for showing us that with the right support and coping strategies, we can find a way through our mental health challenges and create a life of possibilities. You can buy Naomi's book, A Very Long Way, on Amazon and follow her on Instagram at... Naomi Fryers. Thanks to Silk Studios for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And thanks to you all for listening. Take care, choose courage, and see you next week. <laughs>